Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. is having a great week and enjoyed all the costumes on Sunday. Uh, we have another ancient American colleague joining us. Uh, Wayne May has a perceptive group of researchers and contribu contributing authors. Um, Carl Lehrberger is tonight's guest. He is the author of Secrets of Ancient America is an excellent book that examines more evidence found in North America and Mexico that support ancient travelers coming to America long before Columbus. He is also he he has also published on portable rock art. That's gonna be a interesting uh section of our talk tonight. But um most of our show is going to focus on Carl's uh, work in the hemp industry. So I think that's going to be a uh, timely uh, discussion as well. Um, you can learn more about Carl by going to his website's NewHistoryOfAmerica.com, PureVisionTechnology.com, PureHempTech.com, and PureKindBotanicals.com. Hi, Carl. How are you? Hey, Mark. I'm doing great. Um, thanks for that introduction and looking forward to an awesome show. Oh, I think we're, uh, we're going to have one. And... Um, Uh, maybe we'll just start off and ease the audience into your super diverse uh, ground and interests uh, by starting off with um, your Secrets of Ancient America book. Um, I thought your section on the, the Pathfinder site in Colorado – uh, was captivating. Um, 
let's talk a little bit about that. Well, let me give a little background to, to okay. our audience. The, the, the name of the book is Secrets of uh, Ancient America, Archaeoastronomy, and the Legacy of the Phoenicians, Celts, and Other Forgotten Explorers. And uh, people who are interested in the book can go to the newhistoryofamerica.com website. I, I wrote the book to uh, write a new history of America. And uh, what, I, what I learned was that we've been lied about uh, uh, history. And it, it really results in a misunderstanding of who we as Americans and, and by extension, humans are. Uh, I spent a significant amount of my research time and four chapters in the book uh, describing the uh, uh, voyages of the ancient Celts who came across the Atlantic uh, for mining and for colonization uh, uh, thousands of years ago, thousands of years before Columbus, and made their way uh, from New England and, and Michigan uh, down into uh, Oklahoma, Colorado, and Kansas and left a remarkable amount of evidence that they uh, had been there along with uh, their writing and their uh, petroglyphs describing their rituals. Um, within the context of uh, these ancient explorers, uh, who came to America, amazing amount of rock art and, and petroglyphs, which is carvings in stone in North America, a, a, only a very little uh, of, of them are coming from foreign uh, uh, travelers, such as the Celts, uh, the Phoenicians, and the Indus Valley cultures came across the Pacific and they also left a significant amount of evidence uh, that they were uh, here uh, mining and undertaking uh, cultural exchanges as well as explorations. Uh, but I did focus on a specific uh, petroglyph site called the Pathfinder site, which is a Native American site. And it exhibits uh, in, found in Colorado and it exhibits uh, the uh, depiction of a, a Native American myth that's played out in light and shadow on a cave wall on the equinox. And it, it's, it's as in most cases of archaeoastronomy, which is the uh, 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 way that the ancients uh, uh, documented uh, celestial events, uh, particularly on the equinoxes and the solstices, and what is known as the cross-quarter days, which are the days between equinox and solstice. Well, the Pathfinder has a remarkable uh, animation. It's actually a picture, a, a moving picture story, as the light uh, in the form of a light dagger moves across the panel wall, and as it intersects with the different petroglyphic images, it tells an amazing story of first mother. And uh, I had uh, the opportunity to uh, visit and study the 
Pathfinder uh, many times, and it it was not only inspirational but educational uh, as to what uh, the language the ancients use to communicate uh, their spirituality. And uh, this led to uh, visiting many other archaeoastronomical sites throughout the Americas. Uh, and it, as, as, I, as I said, archaeoastronomy is, is one of the languages of the ancients that we're now just really beginning to more uh, fully understand. And, and if it's a big word that the audience may not appreciate or understand, uh, the Stonehenge uh, uses archaeoastronomy to uh, calculate the equinoxes in the solstices, as uh, do the Mayan temples like Chichen Itza, famous descending serpent on the edge of the Chichen Itza Mayan temple. So archaeoastronomy is something that our ancients, whatever continent uh, they were from, employed in their architecture and in their rituals. And the book Secrets of Ancient America documents quite a bit of this, uh, most of it Native American. But it, the, what I discovered is that the Native Americans rarely used archaeoastronomy on the cross-quarter days, and a cross-quarter day would be May Day, uh, Beltane, it's known as in the Celtic language. Uh, and But the ancient Indian cultures and the Celtic and European cultures uh, did celebrate these. So this is how we sometimes know that a particular site uh, was constructed by uh, non-indigenous peoples. <clears throat> and you, know, you do have, have a section on um, Los Lunas, New Mexico, and one of our, uh, yeah, kind of, uh, Heather Arnold, one of our regular uh, uh, guests, uh, was recently there. And uh, um, so when I was going back over uh, your book before the show, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember, you know, she, she uh, posted some, uh, you know, photos for a trip there. Uh, but that was uh, like a, you're saying the uh, petroglyph writing found there in New Mexico was a, a proto-Hebrew writing uh style of writing? Uh, well, let me go back uh, and talk okay. a little bit about uh, Las Lunas uh, because it is a site like many sites that, that have different uh, styles and ages of petroglyphs. And uh, uh, this particular site has what, what, what the archaeologists call ar archaic petroglyphs. Uh, and they're pecked, and these are from uh, the uh, ancestors to the Native American peoples, the tribes of today. But among the petroglyphs, and sometimes carved on top of the petroglyphs, uh, are uh, petroglyphs from other uh, carvings from other cultures. 
And uh, at this particular site, we we do have uh, uh, ancient Hebrew written. It's not written in the block style that most Hebrew today is written, but an earlier version of the Hebrew is 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 carved into several stones there, and one is a, uh, a transliteration of uh, the Ten Commandments, and another one is prayer. Uh, and uh, it, they, like most ancient inscriptions in America, are, are controversial. Uh, very few archaeologists accept that uh, ancient Hebrews uh, were in the New World and leaving uh, the Ten Commandments in, in stone. Um, uh, other sites uh, that are documented in, in the book demonstrate that the Hebrews were here. Uh, just like the Phoenicians, just uh, uh, like uh, the Egyptians, uh, just like Indus Valley cultures. And we know this from uh, coins, from writing, uh, uh, in stone, from tablets, and from artifacts. So part of writing the book, uh, whether it be talking about uh, Las Lunas in New Mexico or uh, sites in Arizona that, that, that show evidence of of Hebrews or sites in California and Nevada uh, that document uh, uh, Indus Valley cultures coming across the Pacific or uh, a vast array of uh, uh, evidence in uh, the New England area of of Celtic, Phoenicians, and even uh, uh, Mediterranean or early Mediterranean people that made it to America uh, across the ocean, uh, set up communities, and, and one uh, called uh, America uh, um, Stone America Stonehenge in New Hampshire, is one such community. So, in writing the book Secrets of Ancient America, I, I sought to really dispel the myth that Columbus discovered America, and document the many many uh, ancient travelers from both sides of the Pacific and the Atlantic that came to America consistent with really the vision of America as a melting pot and America as a a place of refuge for uh, many races and many cultures uh, escaping uh, political violence, exploring, or uh, natural disasters that beset uh, humanity occasionally. Yeah, you know, yeah. You, know, you also ex- extended your research to uh, Mexico and going to uh, Chichen Itza and the Yucatan Peninsula. You know, you're working with uh, Martin Brennan, and his uh, the the Stones of Time is really a fantastic book on so much of this archaeoastronomy in. Um, um, you know, Western Europe. Of Secrets of Ancient America highlighted a researcher or an author. And uh, in addition to my two mentors uh, who really taught me how to understand Petroglyphs, uh, Bill McGlone and Philip Leonard, I featured a chapter on Martin Brennan. Uh, he, he refers to himself as Martin. Uh, and he's he's now in Mexico, and as as you note, Mark, he he is an expert not only in uh, Mayan 
um, uh, cultures and Mayan uh, petroglyphs and, and writing, but also Celtic and, and the Irish uh, uh, megalithic sites. Uh, mm-hmm. And and you know what aspect of of the uh, Mexican research I did that I would share with our audience is that uh, Mexico, like North America, experienced waves of different cultures, uh, uh, principally across the Pacific, but but also across the Atlantic. And um, these uh, migrations at certain times can can, uh, be seen in the art and the symbols employed during that period of time. And um, another researcher who I featured in the book, uh, Gunter uh, Thompson, he mm-hmm. uh, provided full evidence that uh, for a period of 300 years, uh, ancient Asian and Chinese symbols found their way into the Mayan culture. And he documented uh, uh, many of these. And it's just further evidence of the diffusion of culture that uh, most of the archaeological communities has fought for decades, uh, denying uh, the evidence that uh, there's just been many, many cultures going back, I would say tens of thousands, and not just thousands, tens if not longer, coming across America, reseeding it, uh, and taking the... uh, uh, minerals that that were often the reason for them coming here and some stayed so uh, mexico of of course is uh, a big part of the story and it's uh secrets of ancient america doesn't really address mexico but it does explain uh what i just said the diffusion of 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 other cultures coming and meeting Mm -hmm. with indigenous cultures and also documenting a lot of the archaeoastronomy of the uh, ancient Mesoamericans. This is a great segue to uh, a a part of the the secrets of ancient America that hasn't been written yet. And uh, over the last uh, four years, I've been working on a aspect of archeology span called portable rock art. And Uh portable rock art is uh, unlike, you know, maybe a, a Mayan or a Chinese jade artifact, portable rock art are, uh, is, is stone that has been carved. Uh, they can be tools that have artistic enhancements, embellishments. And these uh, artistic enhancements are uh, carved. Uh, they're, they're sometimes etched. And they are embellishing a stone that has a predominant shape uh, that that is usually in the form of uh, an animal or a human-like shape. Now, I bring this up uh, as uh, in a, the context of the Mayans because the uh, the Mayan writing system employed head variants, that is, pictures of animal and human heads. And uh, the, the, for example, every number uh, has a character associated with it, distinguished from uh, a previous or the following number. 
Now, what I, what I discovered in portable rock art is that the ancients carved these rocks and used specific uh, head variants, uh, shapes of head and animal variants uh, in uh, what we would think are common stones. But once identified and once cleaned, they're works of art. Now, one would think that uh, finding a, uh, for example, a crystal skull or a, uh, a, a, a stone knife that has carvings of um, snakes and uh, other animals in it would be a rare thing uh, to find. But what I've discovered in, in the quest is that portable rock art is quite common and commonly found throughout uh, North America. And uh, what's more, it's uh, not recognized by the archaeological community. And I estimate that there is more portable rock art to be had by an order of magnitude than there are arrowheads. And that's not to say that, that if you combine all the work tools, chippers, awls, scrapers, and arrowheads, it wouldn't be maybe an order of magnitude. But I'm here to tell you, Mark and Barbara, and our audience, that this is a secret, and it's, it's going to get out, and part of a lost history. Uh, and, and like the uh, lost history of the Native Americans that was so disrupted with the conquest, I believe that the tradition of creating portable rock art out of uh, rocks and in some cases out of uh, uh, tools goes back not just thousands of years, but goes back uh, before the great uh, comet disaster or known as the great flood uh, in the ice age. So this is an ancient tradition that, that is, that really uh, predates much of, of, of what we consider uh, petroglyphic art or two dimensional art. And I'll just say that uh, unlike a petroglyph or a stone carving on a cave wall, Portable rock art is a three-dimensional artistic platform, uh, meaning that if you were to look at it straight ahead, you would get one image, but as you re it re revolves in your hand, other images come out. And, and this is very exciting for the conversation of human consciousness, because as we discover something that's always been there, but we've just never been able to comprehend it, we must question what's a matter with our mental functioning, our uh, visualizations, that these incredible artistic creations are all around us, but we can't see it. So this is really a jumping off point for, I think, what uh, uh, Alan Watts, the the, the great philosopher, he would say, it, 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 it would stretch your skull 
we we want things that stretch our skull and really open up uh, our limited world to a greater world. And in the context of the, this discussion, the the incredible wisdom and the in, incredible artistic abilities of the ancients that the teachings are there for for us to discover if we're willing to look so uh in in conclusion to you know this uh part of our discussion about secrets of ancient america of uh, many many uh secrets and new information were presented in the book but there are many, many more discoveries to be had and uh, in alignment with the wisdom of the ancients, I think portable rock art is going to become more and more uh, known about. And because it will require us to use a different part of our brain to comprehend these, these ancient art forms in the three-dimensional capacity, it, it really will lead to a stretching of our skull, as Alan put it, or a rising of our consciousness, albeit in a small, small way. Okay. Well, and you do have uh, in, an interesting article in Ancient American Magazine, number 123, about the portable rock art and looking at it, you know, uh, you know, from different angles with, you know, like a flashlight or, you know, sunlight and what may be revealed in that, uh, what the light may give a new perception to you. So, um, yeah, to, Check that out. Uh, call Wayne. Ask him to get you a co- copy of issue number one twenty-three. Pretty interesting article. Well, well, there's 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 a, a quicker way to do it, and uh, uh, at newhistoryofamerica.com on the rock art pages, I have uh, uh, the most recent articles I've published on portable rock art. Uh, in, in, in including the uh, ancient American article uh, changing archaeology forever as well as an article uh, published uh, late last year in ancient origins uh, uh, magazine entitled petroglyphic aspects of portable rock art <clears throat> oh okay so it, yeah you, know, you are Stretching our skulls with your your uh, research into America's prehistory that uh, isn't commonly di- discussed. But you know, how do you go from uh, you know, covering the Phoenicians and uh, portable rock art to uh, becoming involved in the hemp business? Well, Mark, that's a good question. And, uh, you know, it's it's not an easy segue. 
but I will just uh, sum it up by saying that the connection between uh, the, the, the archaeology part of my life and the renewable energy part of my life, which includes um, uh, industrial hemp, um, is consciousness raising. That and I and I I'm sure that many of uh, the audience, uh, like myself, we consider ourselves light workers, and we we've mm-hmm. come here with a mission. And uh, one of those missions is to uh, uh, leave a better world than, than we have now and really help awaken humanity. And in the archaeology field, uh, uh, getting uh, the old paradigms uh, uh, changed and, and reconstructed into a new paradigm uh, that honors the ancients that that honors the uh, ancient uh, uh, and, and Native Americans that that reveals and doesn't cover up the tragedy of the conquest. Uh, uh, you know the, these are things that have been covered up. In the case of cannabis, uh, we we have uh, a most miraculous plant. Uh, that was uh, cultivated for its uh, uh, its nutritional value, its its medicinal value, as well as its uh, uh, ability to be used for building materials and textiles for thousands and thousands and thousands of years by many cultures, only to have it become illegal in the United States in 1931. And this led to other uh, countries making it illegal. And it wasn't until recently that um, uh, several states, and Colorado was one of them, uh, legalized cannabis. And so uh, the the connection between the two is, is really uh, bringing out uh, the the best that we have covered up, whether it be our history or whether it be uh, nature. And I'd like to just begin this segment of our uh, great discussion uh, equating uh, industrial hemp with nature. And and it's not many people think of, of, of hemp and marijuana as as just being uh, plants that provide uh, healing or psychoactive uh, uh, attributes and benefits. But that's far from the truth. Uh, cannabis uh, it, it has, at this stage, two main uh, groupings. One is marijuana that, that does produce a psychoactive cannabinoid uh, THC uh, is the predominant cannabinoid, and hemp, uh, which the predominant cannabinoid uh, is CBD. And the cannabinoid, there are over a hundred of them in the hemp plant, are different uh, chemical-like ingredients that affect uh, our, uh, our our mental uh, functioning. 
And so as it relates to industrial hemp, there are three aspects of this incredible plant. The first is the flowers. And within the flowers, like marijuana, is where the cannabinoids or the medicine is. In the case of hemp, it's the CBD uh, variety of cannabinoid. It's a non-psychoactive cannabinoid. Uh, the, the, the second benefit of this plant is the grain. And I'm talking about industrial hemp here. Uh, grain is, in the case of hemp, the seed. And from the seed, we get the oil, we get the uh, uh, protein powder, we get the flour, we get human nutrition, we get animal nutrition. And uh, the production of hemp seeds per acre exceeds just about any other oil plant. So between the seeds for nutrition, the flowers for medicine, uh, that, that takes about 30% of the plant. But the most of the industrial hemp plant is fiber. And there are two different types of fiber, a short fiber, uh, known as the herd or the woody part of the stem, I should say stalk. And the outer bark is known as the bast, and it's the long fiber, which the ancients and moderns use to make textiles and rope and, and, and other products. Wow. In, a, in addition to these traditional uh, products uh, and applications, uh, our company, uh, Pure Hemp Technology, uh, has uh, found a way to convert the stalks into sugars. And uh, so in addition to using the uh, stalk fibrous product, for example, paper, hemp paper, by adding enzymes, it, we can transform the, the solid uh, uh cellulose into different sugars that then become the intermediates and chemical building blocks for a whole variety of bioproducts. And what I was sharing with you before the show started is that whatever you can do with a with a, a petroleum molecule a petroleum molecule you can find a pathway through a biomolecule for that same chemical or that same fuel. So literally, we can begin replacing refineries with hemp refineries. It's not just a substitute for petroleum-based products uh, in the modern world, but hemp stocks and their associated products uh, are also a substitute for forest-based products. Imagine all the people in our country that every day sit down on the toilet and uh, use the toilet paper that was on the roll that came mm -hmm. from where? Eucalyptus trees from the rainforest of the Amazon. It's cheaper for American tissue manufacturers to import pulp from the rainforest 
than it uh, is for them to domestically produce pulp from the from the forest. Mark, this is a tragedy of enormous human proportions. We're literally wiping our asses with while we're destroying the rainforest. Now, there, there, there are no simple solutions, but certainly one solution is process hemp stalks into pulp to make instead of literally mining the forests of the lungs of the world. And what, what we've learned in, in, in the hemp industry is that the problem is not growing hemp. The farmers of America know how to grow hemp, believe me, and uh, let them loose and they will provide enough hemp stalks, hemp uh, seeds, and hemp flour uh, for uh, uh, thousands of different products. But the, but the, 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 the challenge is that the industrial Society has not invested in the infrastructure to produce uh, hemp paper and to produce bioplastics from hemp stalks and to produce building products so that now there's a big gap in the market. And in the context of what you shared with me uh, before the show started about how offensive it is to see uh, fracking and and new fracking uh, wells coming online in this day and age where uh, the climate crisis is now affecting all of us is part of that tragedy. And uh, one of the solutions is a bio-based solution. It's not limited to hemp. Hemp is incredible because we can use not only the, the, the stocks for building products, for paper products, for specialty chemicals, uh, but the uh, uh, medicine and the nutritional value of this plant is, is something that will provide uh, not only a multitude of industrial and consumer products, but here's the key to where I began the discussion with nature. It goes back to value. This is the opportunity for uh, farmers to get off the GMO kick, to move toward a organic culture, and to move toward a crop, hemp, that emphasizes whole plant utilization. We're using the whole plant. The seeds are going over here and we're getting nutritional products. The flowers are going over here, and we're getting uh, uh, medicinal products. The stock, most of the plant, is going over here, over here, over here to replace oil-based products and to replace, uh, in some cases, uh, forest uh, paper uh, to the benefit of, of local farmers. So to your question, Mark, uh, I, I see these initiatives as uh, both hemp and the archaeological pursuits as uh, a way to uh, communicate the need for all of us to 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 re 
for the stars when it comes to consciousness because our consciousness is the key to transformation. And whether it be a, a transformation of an understanding of who we are as humans by a better understanding of the ancients, or whether it be a uh, comprehension that we have the means through industrial hemp and other uh, uh, bio-based agricultural crops to transform the industrial landscape and to really emerge as a sustainable society, not just the greenwashing that we hear about, but the actual from nature, but working with nature in a partnership to create a better world, not just for humans, but for all life. Okay. Well, just uh, late last week, uh, President Biden was asked, well, when are the gas prices going to come down? And he he said something like, well, I can – you know, re- release some from the uh, oil reserves and the you know, gas prices might come down 18 cents. Well, how, you know, these oil, everyone keeps talking about the oil reserves, you know, when, like after 9-11 or something like that, uh, when so many things were closed down. How, how long would it take to get hemp as part of you know, like uh, the fuel source where we are even less dependent on gas? Well, you know, we just have to go back to uh, 1940. And okay. we, we looked at what was going on, and uh, it was a crisis. The Nazis were, you know, at at Europe's uh, doorstep. There was a crisis, mm-hmm. and uh, it it, um, it was the president of the United States who dictated to the companies that they're not going to be making cars anymore. No, you guys are not making cars. You're making tanks for the war effort, right? So we don't have anything like that to have the leader of our country talking about bringing gas prices down uh, as, as his policy, when in fact it should be how do we transform the petroleum automobile complex into a renewable energy complex where uh, All right. uh, we're getting everything from renewables. We're, we're, we're not opening new fracking wells. And here's, I think, one of the answers to your question. How long will it take? Um, One of the interesting aspects of growing industrial hemp is its incredible capacity. And um, uh, as much as any plant, uh, there's a, a, I think it's 7,000 tons of sequestered carbon per acre. Now, in the United States, that may not be a big deal because uh, the uh, impact of, of uh, 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 the climate crisis is, 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 has not been generally taken seriously. 
But in other parts of the world, particularly Europe, uh, it is taken seriously. And one approach of uh, uh, trying to institute a transition is carbon accounting, carbon sequestration, and uh, 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 carbon uh, revenues. If there are several trading platforms as well as government programs that pay companies to sequester carbon. Now, in the United States, the the, the value of, of a ton of sequestered carbon is, I think, under $5. But uh, here's the answer to your question. When the value of that sequestered carbon goes to $50 or $100, and that there's a offset to the uh, cost of developing things from scratch and building infrastructure. Uh, when we see those kind of revenue-generating benefits for sustainable solutions in a capitalistic economy, that's when things will change. Not only should we be... Uh, uh, having revenue sources accrue to farmers and renewable energy companies and manufacturers that sequester carbon, but we should be taxing uh, petroleum-based products, contrary to what President Biden said. It's the, we need to incentivize renewable energy. And I'll just give one uh, analogy of what I'm talking about. The electric car goes back to the late 1800s. Most of us know that. And mm -hmm. uh, most of us also know that it's been a uh, losing battle in Detroit to get electric vehicles uh, saved the last 10 years. Thank goodness we're moving toward electric vehicles at a rapid pace. But the audience needs to consider that if you're in an electric vehicle and you're charging your car uh, from, with a, 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 having the electricity come from a coal-fired power plant, that's not sustainable. So it's not just having an electric car. It's a, a whole way of viewing our uh, economy in a sustainable way. It's a whole way of reducing waste, reducing, uh, producing incredible amounts of carbon that go into the atmosphere. And it comes back to how we as humans can have a more sustainable relationship with nature. And this is part of, uh, I think, what I experience in the in hemp uh, movement in the hemp industry, uh, people that are attracted to the CBD skincare products, the healing products, people that are attracted to using hemp oil as, as a more nutritious alternative to safflower oil or protein powder from, from the hemp seeds, uh, which is more sustainable than other proteins. And as I've uh, stated, uh, using the stalks to make hemp paper, hemp toilet paper, hemp packaging, uh, hemp uh, uh, chemicals that can replace uh, oil-based chemicals, including 
bioplastics. But let's not forget that that we live in a waste economy, and just making a single throwaway product out of hemp as opposed to oil, you know, that's not going to get us there. Uh, we need to kick the habit of, of uh, a single-use product and such a wasteful economy. So as people, you know, talk about uh, uh, biodegradable and throwing away bioplastics, well, that's not the solution either. We, we, we really need to begin looking at, yes, bio-based plastics, but, but that are reusable and recyclable. I think it's a myth to think that we're going to have biodegradable plastics that disintegrate in the ocean and the problem is going to go away. That's a misnomer. That's a lie. We need to engender a consciousness that is in harmony with nature and throwing anything in the ocean, whether degradable or not, um, is not the solution. And so uh, as it relates to the sustainability movement, hemp is in the forefront. And what, what we need more than anything else is investment in the infrastructure. That is the processing plants uh, and facilities that take the stocks, that take the seeds, and make consumer industrial products uh, for a better world and a better country. Okay, so are, are you working? Uh, obviously, you're working with some farmers, but are, are are you having more and more farmers uh, saying? Uh, you know, we'd like to do business with you, you know, maybe I ought to stop with the uh, growing the GMO-type corn and switch over to hemp. And, like, are, are, are they bringing, harvesting it and bringing it to you? How's that part of the market working well, farmers know how to farm, and if there were a market uh, for 10 million acres of hemp production, you'd see 10 million acres of hemp production. That's not the bottleneck. The bottleneck is that they there aren't the the processing facilities to convert these into products to have a pull through market that is that the consumers are are pulling that hemp toilet paper through the supply chain because it's available as a, as opposed to having hemp entrepreneurs trying to push it you know trying to push it in into the market and until we're we're able to you know get these large biorefineries is what we call them but there would be hemp stock processing facilities and other biomass processing facilities, there's just not going to be enough material to satisfy a growing market. So in this uh, value chain, when we talk about the value chain, we're talking about agriculture at the beginning point. Then we're talking about intermediate processing. So we're taking a stock and making a pulp 
uh, or we're, we're we're taking a seed and and making a, a, a mesh of some kind that would later go into a final product to feed animals, or in the case of of the pulp, it would be made into a paper product. And all this value chain from the agricultural agricultural side to the intermediate processing side where we convert a raw material into an intermediate to the final product production side where we're taking the intermediate and making, God forbid, hemp fuel, but hemp bioplastics or hemp wallboard or hemp insulation, um, that's, that's the value chain. And it's all driven by finance and sales and marketing. And we haven't seen the finance come in to the hemp space to allow large biorefineries to be built, to interest the toilet paper companies of the world that if they say, hey, we're, we're interested in hemp, we're interested in more sustainable paper products. And by the way, we're going to go with the, what the consumers want, which is the natural color. We're going to get rid of the bleaching if it's not needed let's go with that nice tan color that uh, will will make it a much more sustainable process so until we are able to see the money to see these big plants coming online that that one day will replace oil refineries that one day will replace um, uh, pulp mills that one day will replace extruded plastic that use oil uh, bead to make their plastic products and be replaced with extruded plastics that use plant-based materials. So uh, the issue is is, uh, related to the market. Two years ago, the farmers went crazy, especially in Colorado, especially in Oregon, and they grew more than the uh, 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 there was a market. And in the case of both Oregon, in the case of Colorado, uh, a lot of farmers uh, uh, lost a lot of money. And because the regulations are so new and so kinky, uh, if you have too much THC in a hemp plant, some states require the plant be uh, the 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 harvest be burnt. So there were a lot of farmers that uh, had their whole crops destroyed because they had just a little more THC in in the hemp than the law the state law stipulated, which is 0.3 percent. So it it's been a tough road, Mark, for the farming community. Uh, they've taken huge risks. Uh, the hemp uh, har- uh, acreage this year is quite a bit down from last year, but I'm here to tell you that that when facilities begin requiring uh, uh, thousands of tons of hemp stock uh, and on tens of thousands of acres, the American farmer will come to attention, uh, and it, it it's a it's an incredible plant for the farmer because. Uh, unlike most of the farmers' plants, where there's just you know one product, in the case of of industrial hemp, the the main product can be the seeds to make a nutritional products, 
but the co-product is selling the stocks to make industrial products. So it's a win-win, but without the demand, without the processing capabilities to meet the demand, uh, the farmers are not going to grow something and uh, uh, not be able to uh, recoup their investment. Okay, well, on you know, your websites, <clears throat> you do have uh, like skincare type products made from hemp. Um, and I, and I did look at you know a uh, name brand from. You know, my bathroom, you know, you get the uh, 20-syllable words that identify, you know, whatever the chemical is in the, uh, um, you know, solution that you're going to put on your uh, uh, dry hands. Um, It's sounds like the hemp products that um, you have for sale do not have those kinds of um, chemicals in them. So it it would, I'm assuming it's much more better uh, to be on your skin, uh, you know, it, it, you, your skin is absorbing a more natural uh, product. Well, I know we're we're getting short on time, so I want to refer our uh, audience to purekindbotanicals.com. That's purekindbotanicals.com. We got into the CBD uh, business uh, the, for both uh, medicine and for skincare uh, because that was and remains the predominant uh, uh, hemp product in the marketplace today. Uh, another way to put it is we couldn't make money uh, uh, trying to get hemp paper into the marketplace or hemp plastics in the marketplace, but we could make money uh, extracting cannabinoids from industrial hemp and formulating them into consumer products. And uh, Pure Kind Botanicals is uh, an organic uh, culture. We we have an organic uh, certified facility. Uh, Our Fort Lufkin, Colorado facility is also good manufacturing uh, practices uh, certified uh, part of uh, the product lines that we have of our uh, uh, skincare and and healing creams and salves and uh, tinctures is the simplicity of them and they they uh, are, nearly all of our products are, are organic and in 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 some cases they're just a simple uh, uh, product comprised of the uh, CBD cannabinoid mixed with organic coconut oil. So the answer, you know, to to your question 
uh, is that we strive uh, for not only a sustainable and good manufacturing practices, but organic in everything we do. And that's why our products may be a little more expensive than some. Uh, it's because of our uh, premium uh, culture that really emphasizes uh, organic practices and and sustainability practices. So I invite anyone interested to learn uh, more about the amazing hemp plant, all of the things that, that pure hemp technology is doing uh, with the uh, stalks, the seeds, and the flowers, please go to uh, purehemptech.com. And if you're interested in CBD uh, skincare products or tinctures uh, uh, for healing and medicine, check out our sister company, purekindbotanicals.com. Cool. Uh, yeah, I, I know you need to... Uh, get get back to work, and I just want to thank you for uh, being our guest tonight. I, uh, I, I was just really amazed with the, the sound science that you presented tonight. Uh, you, know, uh, you know your articles on the uh, portable rock art and your book Secrets of Ancient America is terrific too. And you are always welcome to come back and uh de- develop this all these topics even more with us. Uh this was just a terrific hour and I'm I'm glad you, know, you were able to give uh the nightlight uh listeners um yeah this much time uh when you're at work and you know hopefully we can do it again sometime soon i just want to uh thank you so so much carol well mark uh thank you and thank thank you barbara uh for hosting me uh Uh anyone who wants to get in touch with me please refer to newhistoryofamerica.com or purehemptech.com i know that uh the the nightlife Folks have listed uh, these websites uh, on 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 their site, and I look mm-hmm. forward to hearing any comments, uh, questions, uh, or opportunities for collaboration uh, and synergistic enterprises uh, with the audience. Okay, uh, this was a, a terrific evening. I, I I don't want to take up any more of your time, so. Uh, you know, we'll hopefully we we can get you uh, back sometime soon, and we'll uh, continue uh, the discussion because you know we're getting to the point where we really all these shortages and things like that. You know, we might need to look at what we can develop here instead of being dependent on. Um, other countries to get these products to us. So uh, this is very, very timely information. So um, yeah, I just want to th- thank you again. Thank you, Barbara, for uh, keeping us on the air. Uh, 
I think Barbara ha- uh, Barbara has Gary Wayne returning Thursday for another fantastic uh, show on his uh, Genesis Six Conspiracy book. Uh, he, he, he's one of our top uh, guests. So uh, thank you again, everyone. Have a great week, and we'll see you thir- Thursday.